0: IVM
1: Have you ever wondered what it was like to study international relations? How are the classes? What's the difference between studying in India and abroad? What can you do with the degree? Does everyone just play war games all the time and discuss politics over chai? And is it really necessary to study international relations? Can't you just wing it? <laughs> Welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsini Hariharan. Today is a special episode, because we are not talking about a subject in foreign policy, but talking about the nature of the field. Over the last couple of months, I've gotten messages from a lot of people, particularly students of international relations, about opportunities and career paths. Now, I've been a student of international relations, and I've also been on the other side as a teacher and I've loved both roles. So today's episode is about the field, what it's like and how to navigate it if you're a student. My guest for today is Shibani Mehta. Shibani is a program associate with the Strategic Studies Program at the Takchushila Institution. She did her master's at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore, and her research areas include foreign policy and India's intelligence agency. So Shibani studied, and manage educational programs related to the field of international relations. We're talking about our own experiences today, as well as things we'd wish we'd known and advice for our younger selves. But before we get into the conversation, let's take a short break.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Do remember that if you enjoy what you're listening to, take a screenshot, tag us on social media, and we'll repost you on one of the platforms. Also, just, you know, shout out if you want to tell us anything about what's going on. Also, a quick reminder, we are still hiring. We're hiring in a whole bunch of different areas. If you're looking to work at what I believe is the best place on earth to work at, then you should check out our careers page. That's at IVM Podcast Slash careers. On The scene and the Unseen, Amit Verma is joined by one of his most frequent guests, Vivek Kaul. They discuss the budget announced for the year 2019-2020 and answer listener questions in the second half. On The Origin of Things, Chuck narrates a story of purity, an outdated beverage and a business deal. On Not Just Dansak, Parzan talks to Kaina's contractor, co-founder of Rustam's Parsi Bonu, restaurant that serves home-style Parsi food in Delhi. On Geek Fruit, Tejas and Jishnu are joined by stand-up comedian Rohan Joshi. They talk about the new Spider-Man movie, Far From Home. On Advertising is Dead, Pratish Mepani, founder and creative director at Starting Monday Design and Branding Company, talks to Varun about how the concept of design in India has evolved over the years and the importance of it in trade and business. On Puliyabazi Pranay and Saurabh are joined by Anup Rajput, engineering head at Incus Technology, to discuss semiconductor microchips, their supply and manufacturing, and how it affects geopolitics between India, China and the U.S. On the Empowering Series, Zarina is joined by Ambar Rana, founder, Corpus Legal, and host of the podcast Noir Kanoon. They talk about gender equality, the importance of diversity at the workplace, and general neutral laws. On Golgappa, Trupti talks to Anuya Jakatdar, co-founder of Books on Toast, about her love for books and what it was like growing up in a Marathi household. And with that, let's continue on with your show.
1: Welcome back to States of Anaki. I'm Hamsini Hariharan, and I'm in conversation with Shibani Mehta about studying international relations. Hi Shubhani, welcome to States of Anarchy. Hi, happy to be here. Okay, so you have studied international relations, you've managed programs on international relations, you've taught international relations. A little bit, yes. (laughs) So there is a lot that you've done in the field of IR. So how did you get started? Like, what made you choose international relations as a domain?
3: Um, I think it was a bit of luck and a bit of pressure to sort of Send in applications uh, because college was getting over and uh, I didn't have a job. So this is the last year of your undergrad. This is the last year of my undergraduate degree. Um, I knew I wanted to branch out of economics. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were a lot of exciting things happening around the time I was finishing college, which made me sort of jump into IR and explore that as a discipline. And, uh, yes, two years, uh, I mean, two months after finishing college, I found myself sitting in a graduate class, uh, in Singapore, studying IR. That's pretty awesome. You went to like one of the best
1: schools possibly in the world for IR, right?
3: Yes. Yeah. It was a fun time.
1: Yeah. So what were like your favorite subjects? What did you like about it? Were there aspects of, you know, like the course or just like the discipline itself that you didn't like?
3: Right. So, um... When someone asks me if I enjoyed my master's program, I always tell them I would do it all over again Mm. without changing a single thing because that's how much fun I had studying. So when I went to Singapore, I wasn't fully aware of what the discipline is, Mm. uh, what the variety of prospects one has after you study IR. Um, In my head, I went in thinking... It's just an extension of political science, and uh, I will probably come back and write the civil service exam and join the foreign service, which I think is uh, what a lot of people think in India when they think about international relations.
1: Uh, Yeah, I completely agree. Like, so I did my degree in India, right? And... uh when I finished my journalism degree, I was like, "You know international relations seems exciting I think war
3: reporting war and
1: reporting and CNN. like exactly, and I will be in Iraq on the front lines or you know like traveling to these remote parts of the right. world and yeah. reporting on them." And, like, my idea of IR was, like, the IFS that my parents were, like, it's in your horoscope, you have to do this, or, like, MUNs, right? Like, the yeah. Model United yeah. Nations. Those were, like, the two benchmarks that I had for all things IR. There wasn't really an ecosystem apart from that.
3: Right, yeah. Um, yeah, the second thing is the United Nations. Oh, so, are you going to be working for the United Nations after you've, you know, finish your program and... Yeah, it's not that easy to get a job (laughs) at the UN, first of all, Uh, but there is a lot more that happens in within the field uh, that I think we in India are just not exposed to right now.
1: Yeah, particularly like at a high school or undergraduate level, right? right. I mean, yeah. places like the US, you have grants that allow you to learn languages or, you know, just exchange programs and things like that. And I don't think, you know, just our universities in India aren't really connected to each other, forget right. like an ecosystem yeah. outside the country.
3: That's true. I also realized this because I had classmates who knew why exactly they were pursuing this. Mm. And uh, they knew where this program would take them or why a training in international relations was necessary in their you know, careers or in professional lives. And then there were some of us who were like, yeah, I'd studied this thing and it seemed interesting, so I'm here trying to figure it out, which is also fine. It's not a bad thing. uh,
1: Yeah, like I was talking to this uh, young girl who would called me up the other day And she said, you know, I don't really know people who are sort of in the policy or international relations space Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, you know, if you could tell me how I should do this Mm -hmm. And I was telling her there are many, many different ways that you can go about this, right? Right. There's not one set path by which you work in foreign policy And that's the nice thing about it, you know Mm -hmm. You can take a gap year, travel the world, figure out if there's a region you like Mm -hmm. Or, you know, intern, or do your master's immediately and then figure it out yeah. as it goes. So, yeah, there are lots of ways to there, do this. There are
3: lots of ways and I think not enough people talking about it and telling like you said someone approached you. Yeah. Um uh, I don't think I had anyone to go to and say this seems interesting, should I, you know, what do I do or how do I go about it?
1: Yeah. I think the lack of mentorship is something that is very difficult in particularly in fields in the liberal arts where, you know, Mm -hmm. like money is always sort of limited, right? So you're trying to figure out how you can do something that you really like and are really interested in. And also at the same time, be able to put food on the table and not have to worry about that. Essentially. Right.
3: Right. Right. So I went there, uh, excited and, you know, starry eyed, um, And that's when I realized the rigor that is present in the program. It's not just people sitting around a table and talking about what's making the news. Mm. Um, You know, Trump got elected. Oh, I don't like him. Oh, I love him. Whatever else. Mm What I was actually thinking is,
1: reading is such a big part of it, right? Okay, mm-hmm. just for an overview for India, you have like JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University, which is like the mecca of international mm-hmm. relations in India. And then you have like pockets of IR everywhere else that are not as big. You have Jadavpur University, you have um, Manipal, you have South Asian University. Mm-hmm. And those are largely the large hubs, you know. Mm-hmm. And, like, in JNU, there's still, while it is a great college and it has, like, the best minds in the country there and Mm. and they're deeply tied to the government and policy, you also have the fact that, you know, the curriculum is not updated Mm. and, like, at the end of the day, it's a government university, so you have all the baggage that comes with that. Um, And something that I was thinking about when I was doing my master's was that... um, we read enough, we did like a lot of research. Mm -hmm. But I also know that it wasn't on par with the amount of reading that you have to do when you're outside India. Was that something that you faced?
3: Yes. In fact, in my first term, I was very overwhelmed by the workload and the expectations in terms of the quality of output that you were expected to give. Um, My professors were very kind, very helpful. And I think they understand the, the diversity of of the classroom, and they're willing to help you. But um, it can be overwhelming, uh, especially if you're new. It was not uncommon for people to break down in class. But I think that that is part of the learning experience. At least for me, it helped me, like, push myself a lot harder and try and, you know, read up and ask questions. That is a big thing that... uh, was encouraged in my university, which I found lacking in my education in India.
1: Yeah, in India, you have like a lot of hand holding even in your undergraduate yeah. days, right? And like, even when I was teaching and with a lot of people, mm. they were like, okay, which questions are going to come for the midterms? Yeah. And I said, you know, You have to be reading, you have to know what's happening with ISIS or in Latin America or like the nitty gritties of what's happening between U.S. and China. And that is your midterm. Right. And because you it's not something that you can write like a 10 mark answer on and be done with. It's the world at the end of the day.
3: Yeah. And I still remember one of my professors said that the final exam is an open book exam and you will have one question. All of us had like this mini celebration. But he said that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, you know. It's not like I will ask you to reproduce what is in the book. Mm. It's a lot harder. In India, if you say open book exam, it means oh, I know which page number to look for, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. look at for the answer. But you know, um,
1: what were the type of questions you were asked? If you remember any?
3: Oh man, no, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what I was asked, but I I do remember this that. While we were being tested on uh, our grasp of theory and our uh, comprehension of the readings, it was also very application-oriented. All right. In the sense? In the sense, we were asked to analyze as well. So you're Mm. not just picking up bits of text and uh, writing it again, Mm. but you're also trying to see how it plays out in the world of global politics. and presenting your informed analysis on mm. what's going on, which I think is essential for training in IR. It's not just about knowing who are the realists and naming five, you know, mm. people from the liberal school of thought, but also trying to see that, you know, is this what's actually happening around me? And, um, yeah
1: that is a great point, and it also brings me to the fact that you know there are different colleges and universities around the world, and all of them stress on different aspects of international relations right and International relations is inherently multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S. you have like a large reliance on say, statistics and uh, there are schools in Europe that largely are constructivist and things like that. So how did you find like the multidisciplinary nature of it? Suddenly you had to know history and sociology and anthropology and fit all those things together. So
3: I think... um One thing that was useful for me personally was uh, I had done history, economics and political science as an undergraduate. So that interdisciplinary approach to a problem came naturally Hmm. by the time I did my master's. But there was so much more that I still didn't know. And um, there's philosophy, there's discourse analysis, there's anthropology and culture and there are so many ways to look at a problem mm. um, The fun part about it is that you can take like pick up the thread that you find exciting and look at the problem from that lens yeah. you know which uh, and it 's exciting that i r lets you do that
1: yeah, I agree uh, like when I first started i r in my master 's and Um, I come from a journalism background, which is like a little bit of everything and therefore nothing. So um, I felt like the jack of all trades. And I said, okay, I've done like a little bit of history, but I don't know, you know, the history of India's foreign policy or Mm -hmm. um, things like that. And that's what I still like about working in international relations. You know, every single day there is something new that you will find out about the world and it will inform the way you look at the world. And that's something that I really enjoy.
3: Right. Yeah, I think that is one of the most fascinating things is you never get bored mm. and you will never reach a saturation point where you say, I know everything because mm. there is no way you can predict what's going to happen. In fact, I think like
1: the more you study, the more you realize that, you know, Little, lesser of the yeah. world, right? Yeah. It's the Dunning-Kruger
3: effect. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And but it doesn't stop you from wanting to know more.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, if someone wants to sort of get into international relations, they have to realize that they're never going to stop learning. They're never going to stop reading. There's not going to be a day when they say, you know, the Middle East, I can say everything about the Middle East. I know it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that day is never going to come, I think, uh, personally.
3: And so when I started off, um, ISIS and international terrorism was the hot topic. Mm. And um, I was very excited. I wanted to know. I started looking at, say, like, you know, uh, thought and terrorism and psychology and try to look at, you know, can you really change a terrorist's heart and mind? Mm. Um, But that was because at that time, that was a hot topic. It was very fascinating. I got to, I started look, like reading up on psychology, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm. But uh, so that happened. But since then, I've also moved across. I so I went from the Middle East. Now I look at ASEAN and India's neighborhood. Equally exciting. So much more to learn. But yeah, and you can always switch within IR. There's so much to do that mm. you can. Yeah, the the movement is very fluid.
1: That's true. Like when uh, so schools in India are very particular about their focus on Pakistan. Like right, like Pakistan. Always, I wonder why. <laughs> Pakistan is always going to be a big part of like India's foreign policy. So there'll always be a focus on Pakistan. There'll always be a focus on like nuclear issues. Right, and you know I. So I was reading through a lot of this material, and I didn't particularly care for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then later, like when I came back to it, and like I was working on nuclear issues again, like Hmm. three, four years down the line, I was like, okay, this has come of help at some point.
3: Right, your training will never go, uh, will never not be useful to you. Yeah, I completely agree. And I like your point about
1: like sort of switching. Like I started uh, with things in ASEAN. Hmm. Um, so, and it just came because right before my master's, I'd spent a couple of weeks in Indonesia. Hmm. And I'd met like people from all over Asia for a conference and I was very excited about it. So when I came back, hmm. I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on Southeast Asia. And that slowly just like gravitated towards China, which gravitated towards like a larger Indo-Pacific focus. Right. And yeah, like, and I like that you can do that. I like that you can have several interests that you can sort of mar together.
3: Yeah, but I think at the same point, while you're discovering what your interest is, uh, once you reach that point, you need to immerse yourself into it entirely mm. and you've done that with your china like you've learned the language to an advanced level you've traveled there you're going there to do your masters right so
1: you're flattering <laughs> <this is nice. laughs> no but
3: you have worked hard and it's not just uh about reading up you have to familiarize yourself with the language with the culture i mean ideally you should go and travel to the place if you're Mm. looking at a specific uh, region. But if you can't, then, you know, get your hands on as many sources as you can and try and...
1: Yeah, like, this reminds me of when I was uh, really young. So I did French in school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also learned it at the Alliance Française. And my teacher used to say, you know, you need to... A walk in French, you need to think in French, you need to r- dream in French. Yeah, and yeah. I think like whenever you're focusing on something in international relations, you have to do that. You really have to immerse yourself. This is not just about learning about like foreign policy or the government. Like I watched Mandarin series for a very long time. I yeah. listened to like Chinese music and, you know, yeah. and all of that informs you and you figure out ways that you didn't know about the world. There's never you can like you will never come to a point where you say you know everything. Is
3: right. So like learning does is not limited to the classroom or to your books. Mm. You have to find avenues to learn about what you like in, in many, many ways. Mm. Um, like you said, music, television, podcasts, whatever it is, mm. learn the language.
1: Okay. So how do you feel about like this? Everyone comes to this conundrum in international relations. At some point they go, you know should I pick an area or should I pick a region? Hmm. Uh, have you come to that point?
3: And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still struggling with it. Um, I started off with terrorism, uh, and focused on the middle East. Um, yeah. And then I, I went deeper into say like specific countries like Saudi Arabia and Turkey and then Iraq and Iran. Um, So I think everyone has a different way of arriving at that. Either you start off, like you said, you travel to Indonesia, so then you step back and start looking at ASEAN, or you're like, I will look at this region, and then you find smaller parts of it. The interesting thing here, again, is that you cannot just look at one country or one region. It's very difficult to... Because you can't study, say, China without knowing the politics of the US. Uh, You can't be an Indian studying China if you don't know uh, what's happening around India and in India with respect to China. Yeah, and in
1: South Asia. There are lots of ways to look at it. Or you can't just be studying Pakistan without looking at its dynamics with Afghanistan, without looking at its borders with Iraq. Yeah. And there are lots of things that inform that relationship. Yeah, so
3: I think if you... uh, if you put this sort of pressure on yourself to be i will be a sri lanka expert
2: mm.
3: i mean that's a great like goal to have but sort of keep your eye on what else influences the region or the country that you're mm. looking at and don't just look at it in isolation it's not possible geopolitics is not does not happen in isolation so.
1: that's true i mean you always have to keep like context in mind you always have to keep in mind that it's informed by so many other things. And that brings me to like the link between like international relations and domestic politics, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the first things that I heard was that foreign policy is a black box, right? Like that was one of the first theories. And then like it was broken down by a lot of different people saying foreign Mm -hmm. policy is not a black box. And, When I first started doing international relations, we spoke a lot about national security. Mm -hmm. Uh, We spoke a little bit about, like, internal security, particularly about things that were happening Mm -hmm. at that point in time with, like, Maoism in some parts of India Mm -hmm. or with, uh, you know, border issues, whether, you know, it was on the Western Front or the Eastern Front. and. I didn't really think of things that related to public policy. I didn't think of things that were related to elections or just like the amount of money that you spend on like farm loan waivers. And I didn't see a broader correlation of that and India's uh, stance on like the world stage.
3: I was exactly the same. I said, I am one of the 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 cooler kids doing policy because mm. you're doing foreign policy, yeah, right? Yeah. So you, you don't care about elections and... Public health and, and... Yeah, you know, state budgets, not my problem. Uh, but I think this realization I came to in a project that you and I were working together on Sri Lanka, mm. uh, where you realized that the personality of the politician and how that impacts foreign policy of that country... Um, this has been widely studied about you know, how personalities impact policy decisions but if you look at it carefully enough, the kind of person that comes to office is going to take decisions about foreign policy that Mm. the country is going to, you know, implement and uh, his ideas his or her uh, training and thinking will impact those policy decisions so you can't say that Yes, you're looking at it in a more limited way, Mm. but you can't uh, ignore it entirely.
1: Yeah, and I think by ignoring it, you sort of do like a huge disservice to the research that you're doing. Yeah, like the project that we were working on, I remember saying, okay, how much does the personality of a leader is really affected. At the end of the day, isn't foreign policy sort of immune from who comes mm. and who goes, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something we talk about with respect to sort of Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un. We right. say, you know, there's the madman theory that says, yeah. you know, these guys act crazy so that it gives them leveraging power. So mm-hmm. personality doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's the signaling or it's mm-hmm. the stance. And um, a lot of people also go, that's such a realist way of looking at yes. things, you know. Um and perhaps it is, but you can't sort of deny that there are several structural factors that um define a situation, I guess, and that,
3: yeah, I agree with that completely
1: yeah um so and yeah, and when I think about public policy in general, right, for example, we don't look at uh, the liberalisation, for example, as a foreign mm-hmm. policy subject, mm-hmm. right, yeah uh, because then it also goes back to like the sovereignty of our country and um, a loss of face in that manner mm. but I think there are so many avenues that we still haven't studied particularly in India as mm. a foreign policy subject mm. we look at a lot of these things as yeah, domestic subjects
3: right um, yeah and that brings me to the point of how the, the discipline itself is evolving mm. because again the world is not static so things are going on and you know you realize that oh this is also important and it is also you know Uh, international relations Uh, when i go back to my university say website or just like reconnect with my professors they are not teaching the same subjects that they taught Mm. two years ago it is modified it is updated Uh, yes the core of it is the same but you have to stay relevant Mm. to what is happening because otherwise why are you doing this
1: yeah, I completely agree. Like a lot of times, you know, even when we talk about like uh, the conflict between US and China and people go, you know, bandwagoning is not like a great way mm-hmm. to sort of analyze these issues because mm-hmm. a lot of these concepts are Cold War concepts. And how much right. can you just take something that was devised 20 years ago and apply it mm-hmm. now? Or even, you know, when the clash of civilizations gets critiqued, you go, right. that that's not really applicable in today's world. Um, And yeah, and I think that's something that I like about international relations. I like that it's always dynamic. I like that, you know, like if I record a podcast now, a month later, the circumstances would would have have changed.
3: changed. Exactly. Yeah, it's continuously changing. And you have, there's always like a point of view that is relevant and that can be debated. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, the good thing about
1: Now, more than even, say, five years ago when we were starting out, Mm. um, there are opportunities in international relations that we couldn't think of. And, like, my mentors have told me this. And Mm -hmm. they're like, you know, when we started out, we didn't have half the opportunities that were there currently, right? So what do you think of the field? Like, how do you think it's changing?
3: Uh, I think there's a lot more information about the field, uh, Mm. especially in India. Uh, I see the term... Being used more frequently among students, I have a 18-year-old cousin who's done an elective in international relations in high wow. school. So you know, the it's great that it's happening. And you were talking about the sort of institutions we have in the country, but um, there are newer universities that are offering programs. Uh, like Ashoka University and mm. uh, good programs in international relations. And, yeah, and
1: I mean places like Takshashira, right, that do programs that you can do off the side.
3: Yes, yeah. So you have full-time degrees or you have, if you are someone who's trying to sort of, you know, just make sense of the news, like, well, if, uh, you know, uh, U.S. imposes uh, trade, whatever, barriers on China, what does it mean for a mm. person in Bangalore? Uh, You do a 12-week crash course in defense and foreign affairs and you're just more informed and hopefully making intelligent conversation.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think also, you know, there are internships that are open now that just didn't exist five years ago. There are organizations that uh, Mm -hmm. run now that didn't Mm -hmm. exist five years ago. And Mm -hmm. that's nice because... You know, even I think when we start with international relations, everyone was like, yeah, after this, you will go for the IFS. Like at right. one point, I told my relatives because it was just so hard to explain to them what I was doing. Because right. the option was between, oh, you're Barkha Dutt or you're trying for the IFS. These yeah. were like the two yeah. broad. Or
3: you're at the
1: UN. Yeah, or you're <laughs> at the UN, which is the dream, right? You're going right. to be the next Kofi Annan at that point. Right, yeah. Oh, that was my real dream at eight years old, by the way. <laughs> Um, but yeah now you know you can do country risk get corporates um, you can work within organizations uh, you have think tanks outside the government you have the government itself welcoming new people and saying you know yeah. we want more people who have roots in foreign policy and that's nice like I'm glad that the field is growing and I'm glad that more people are sort of coming into it because it changes sort of the tenor of our dialogue
3: right That that's yeah I, I don't think that the kind of options I had three years ago were quite limiting. Mm. And, you know, uh, there was a moment where I said, you know, maybe this wasn't the right choice. Right. Uh, and should I just do a PhD? Because I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Which is, by the way, just for everyone listening, that's the worst reason to take do on a Do not
1: do a PhD because you don't know what else to do with your life.
3: Yes. And... Uh, a lot of relatives will tell you, uh, yeah, teaching, teaching is a good option. Yeah, yeah. You're a girl, so you can also get married
1: and you can teach. So that's a yes. great idea. Um,
3: but there are options out there. And um, the more you talk, the more you read, I think the, you will stumble upon something that's made for you. That okay. makes me feel better right now. At this point, let's take a break.
2: Namaste, I'm Saurabh Chandra.
1: And I'm Pranay Kutustane.
2: जब मेहफ़िल ख़त्म होते होते दरवाज़े के बाहर पुलिया के ऊपर हम दुनिया भर की जटिल समस्याओं को सॉल्व करने में लग जाते हैं तो हो जाती है पुलिया बाज़ी। अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं। तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलिया बाजी में जहाँ प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम
1: दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी
2: में हमें की वेबसाइट ऐप अपने फेवरेट
1: पॉडकास्टिंग Uh, i'm also wondering how did you sort of like figure out internships how did you figure that when you were in college
3: um so i think i realized this quite early on Uh, i i was willing to ask for help Hmm. and at that point i had nothing to lose like Hmm. uh, the director of a think tank i mean his opinion of me didn't matter so i would just write an email and say Hey, I like the work you're doing. This is what I'm doing right now. And I'd really like to, you know, work with you.
1: Hmm.
3: I spent, um, yeah, go for coffee breaks with your professors. They'll know people. They'll put you in touch with people. And I think one thing just, you know, uh, leads to another. I knew that either I wanted to uh, do journalism or media related Hmm. work or I wanted to do research. Mm. So I narrowed that down. That meant having conversations about internships or employment a lot easier than just saying, I don't know, Mm. you know, uh, maybe this, maybe that. Mm. So I think all of us already know what we'd like to do. And... uh, Then you just dive deeper into that.
1: Yeah, I think on a general level, it's also saying, okay, these are sort of my goals, these are the things I want to experiment with, I may be good at these things. Right. You know, it's being like very self aware about where sort of your strengths lie and knowing what you want. The thing is, I'm the type of person who knows exactly what I don't want. I'm like, okay, I don't want to work in this kind of environment or I don't want to work in just this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was in college, I was the type of person who was, yeah, I wasn't afraid to ask for help. But I was also, you know, I wasn't great with, like, people skills. So mm-hmm. at conferences, I was always sort of worried of, like, going up to people and sort of speaking right. to them. Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, these were people with who worked in the field. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, like a master student in a tiny town.
3: Right. Um,
1: but I think, like, you sort of have to come out of that shell.
3: And, I, like, a master student in a small coastal town is exactly why you can walk up to these big people and say, hi, I'm just a master's student <laughs> and I want to be you, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd be like, most often they, they indulge you and they're happy to talk to you. That's true.
1: Um, That's what I actually realized. People are very happy to talk to master's students and go, okay, you're doing this. And they also, I think, you know, people who are already in the field go, they realize that if they want the field to be successful, then the new people who are coming in should be like just as good or you know, even better.
3: Right.
1: Um. So like when I was, you know, I attended a conference in Korea recently mm-hmm. and I could see like these master students because I had been them, right? Yes. So I yeah. could see them going, hi, like I'm this person, I followed your work, I read this paper, it was recommended reading for our class right. and I was wondering what you thought of this. And yeah. I, I think that's just like a great way to get started on something,
3: right? And like you said, because you and I have been there, mm-hmm. we won't not help someone, who reaches out to us. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In whatever limited capacity that, you know, uh, we can.
1: Yeah. I think it's very difficult to realize that everyone who's been in this field has gone through exactly what Mm -hmm. you've gone through. They've gone through horrible research papers. They've gone through the not knowing of which area or which discipline Mm -hmm. to choose. Um, And so there's always sort of, you know, help out there and the people, you know, there's always guidance out there. Yeah, I
3: think the problem is that it's not in the most traditional ways mm. as it is with other professions where you know that, okay, I want to work for this company and in three years I want to be at this designation and in five years I want mm. to be CEO, VP, whatever. It's not that traditional. There's there's going to be a lot of, you know, turns and mm. you're going to change fields and you yeah.
1: Change focuses. Change and- focuses,
3: exactly. And um, so I think... Your uh, techniques also need to be adaptive and your approach needs to be a little more flexible.
1: Yeah, like this reminds me of, you know, when I was in my master's, I'd just gotten out from a journalism degree. So I was used to writing like a journalist Mm -hmm. and I didn't know what like academic writing was. And on the other hand, I had people who'd done like econ or something like that and they'd Mm -hmm. been used to writing a lot of papers. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, like cut forward to like later when I was writing for sort of newspapers, I could balance that out. Like I could do like academic writing and journalistic writing. And they were like, okay, you need to figure out How to write and how to teach and Mm -hmm. how to talk to people at conferences, and you realize that suddenly, you know, working in international relations is not one thing. You don't Mm -hmm. just teach; you also write. You also do a whole bunch of things that you you also do podcasts. Exactly,
3: (laughs) (laughs) right? Uh, No, so I actually that I was just thinking about this. Uh, A lot of emphasis is given on writing Mm. in IR and foreign policy. Would you say you have to be a good writer? to be successful in the field
1: Uh, okay so I always worry about how you define a good writer because Mm -hmm. like when I was uh helping uh, edit Pragati the magazine we would get like a lot of articles from people who were in academia Mm -hmm. and these were great ideas but what we would also say is you know the mark of like a good researcher or the the mark of a good academic is someone who's able to translate things Mm -hmm. Um, so my editor Amit Varma who you know also runs the scene and the unseen would be like imagine you're explaining this to like a smart teenager Mm -hmm. you know like how would you then Mm -hmm. put it Um, and I thought that was just like a great way of writing but I think you don't have to start out as a good writer you don't have to be like yeah like I've come with Shakespeare sitting at the Mm -hmm. back of my hairband Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's the kind of writing you need to do I think you just need to have sort of clarity Mm -hmm. writing is something that comes with honing the muscle Mm -hmm. you write till You can churn out pieces in a day, right? Mm -hmm. Writing is something that happens to you. And I agree in the sense that it's very necessary. You have to be able to put pen to paper and come out with like Mm -hmm. a paper of 5,000 or just research. So, yeah. So, I I wish that that wasn't the case. Yes, Mm -hmm. you can do new things. You can do podcasts and videos and things like that. But... IR is still very traditional in the sense that you know you need to have papers that are published in academic yeah, journals. to be
3: credible, you need. To yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, no, I I ask this because when uh, I started out and like you said, we had to submit essays of like three thousand five hundred words to five thousand mm. words, and I used to struggle with the word limit in terms of not being able to reach mm. that you know limit. Um, if it was five thousand words. I was able to communicate it in 3,000 words of, Mm -hmm. you know, 3,500 words. And I think when you study in India, you're really paranoid about these things. Yeah. (laughs) So I thought I would fail. And, uh, you know, I'm going to have to, I don't know, do work for extra credit and all Mm -hmm. of that. But uh, I did fairly well on that paper. Mm -hmm. And like one of the comments that I got on it was that it's easy to understand And you make your point simply and quickly. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of I've met a lot of younger sort of students who 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 have great ideas and um, but just aren't used to writing. And I think that is something that everyone needs to practice and get better at. I would say writing and
1: just sort of like a larger communication about your ideas is something that you have to hone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a friend who started working for the Economic Times recently and she comes from a background of research and this is the first time she's doing full-time journalistic writing. And I was sitting with her the other day and we were doing like a writing day and she said... Mm -hmm. I don't get this. Like, I'm used to writing 3,000 words. How am I supposed to write 850? You know, which was a problem that I had when I was in academia. I was like, 5,000 word limit? I will write eight. Like, I can't do this. But I think explaining your points crisply, explaining Mm -hmm. them succinctly, Mm -hmm. it's an art. And it's something that you
3: have to work hard at. Especially in IR, I think. Yeah.
1: Because you have like a lot of waddle. You can, you know, put in history from the 1860s Mm. about everything. Right. Right. But there's sort of like... You need a very good sense of what should I include? What is necessary to this argument? Mm -hmm. What points will add to it? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, do I really need some of this? And I think that's a very uh, important skill. And it's something that comes only with practice. You have to keep writing. And more importantly, you have to keep reading. Yes, Um, of course. Right? Like only when you read a lot of good writing will you be able to find like your own style There mm-hmm. is like a style even with an academic writing. Right. And I think it's important to recognize that people think like, you know, academic writing is boring, or, you know, it's not as, you know, mm. like, flavorful. Right. <laughs> but like my best papers are like my favorite reading sometimes is mm-hmm. academic. And I think, you know, once you find your sort of niche or your, your you know, your comfort level, mm-hmm. um, I think you just get better at it.
3: But there's no running away from it. There's no running
1: away from it.
3: Uh, I mean, at some point, maybe you're just tweeting about IR, but yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay. At the end of the day, you can do careers that are not related to writing you don't have to do like an academic career a bunch of friends i know are sort of doing trainings for kids Mm. um they're doing country risk so Mm. it's a different ball game altogether it's it's still ir it's not that it's not you know like pure ir Mm -hmm. in the sense of us academics or like we will be objective about things right But it's, so you can sort of also take that career if you think that, you know, writing is not meant for me and I'd rather Mm -hmm. be in an environment where I can just sort of communicate these ideas. But even in that situation, I don't think you can run away from writing.
3: Yeah. I mean, even if you're a broadcast journalist, you're doing storyboards and things like that. So, you know.
1: Yeah. So, uh, like, I'm going to be teaching at, like, the Symbiosis Institute of Media and Communication and... um, and I was thinking, you know, these are media kids. Mm-hmm. They don't really care about the world. Because mm-hmm. I was a media kid. Okay. I didn't really care about not the world. You're allowed to say that. I'm not allowed <laughs> to say <that. laughs> Yeah, like I was a media kid. I didn't really care about the world. And I said, you know, like, how do I make this interesting for them? And I was thinking about something that we did at Pragati that you and I mm-hmm. did often, which was houseful foreign policy, yeah. right? You can find evidences of international relations everywhere. You wrote that article about the Lion King, yes, right?
3: Yes, yes. Um, I think for me uh, that was a great discovery because I love watching movies. Mm-hmm. And I think without subconsciously, I was also looking for. Uh, foreign policy comparisons mm. while I was watching a film. It was not something that I was doing actively, it just happened. Like you're watching something and you're like, oh, that's, you know, that's defensive realism. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing that my professor was talking to me about last mm. week. And you are actually sitting and watching a Marvel movie. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's great if you can realize that and, you know, you can bring that together. For other people to consume uh, IR mm. in a way that is more appealing than, like you said, academic journal articles. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. Like, my father took me to watch John Wick third oh. like, a couple of months back. And I was just, why am I here? <laughs> Until, uh, you know, on the screen it flashed. Like, some guy said, if you want peace, then prepare for war. And I said, yes, I know that. <laughs> like, yeah. You know.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's actually, once, if you start paying attention, it's all around you. Yeah. Uh, I think what uh, General Menon uh, here at Takshishrila often says that uh, studying IR can also help you understand family dynamics. Mm. So, you know, if you study how states behave with one another, you'll actually understand your family better. I mean, he says it in jest, but there is some amount of truth. True. I I, I agree with that. I find myself,
1: you know, every day using, um, whether it's concepts on like morality Mm -hmm. or... uh, You know, just things from realism or liberalism um, in just life every day. I see snatches of it in fiction and in movies and culture and relationships. And I think that's great. I like that every day, you know, and not only am I learning about the world, I'm also looking at it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, yeah, the world will not cease to surprise Mm. Uh, if you study IR. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right. On that note, this is like my last question. But generally, I ask people what books they recommend. um, If for someone who's interested in international relations, someone who wants to study more, someone who's interested in a career in the field, Mm -hmm. do you have something
3: that you would like to recommend? Or do you have like a favorite book in international relations? Um, So... I didn't start out reading a lot of books when I started. I I started with smaller, shorter, like, blogs and magazine articles and things like that. Um, Magazines I would definitely recommend uh, are foreign affairs and foreign policy. They have some excellent pieces um, on IR and current affairs. I would also recommend Shiv Shankar Menon's choices Mm -hmm. to uh, people in India or people interested in studying about India. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think for me personally, that was a very good book because I could see the application of IR theory in policy Mm -hmm. and whether or not you can actually just pick up theory and convert Mm -hmm. it to policy or not. And what are the challenges Mm -hmm. when you try and do something like that? So, yeah. Those are my recommendations. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yes, it was.
1: (laughs) So that's the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. Thanks for staying with us till the end. I often tell my students that international relations isn't just a discipline. It seeps into your politics, your pop culture, your relationships, and every single part of your life. It's all about the frame of reference. I've attached some general readings about international relations and how the field has evolved in the episode description. So do check that out. If you have any comments or questions, then do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsni H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app and wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you haven't subscribed already, just click on the button and before you know it, we'll be back next week.
0: Are you constantly seeking happiness? Wondering how to make the most of every day? How not to let your inhibitions stop you from achieving your goals? It's now time to get your A-game on. It's time to unlock your true potential. Tune in to the empowering series with me, Zarina Poonawala, to feel empowered in all genres of life. From behavioral skills to management skills, from health to relationships, from mental well-being to emotional well-being. And of course, your finances. I've got you covered. With these tips and tricks from me, Zarina, and true life stories from my amazing guests, you're bound to bring your purest to the table. Tune into the Empowering Series with Zarina Punawala every Thursday on the IVM Podcast app, website, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Filter coffee is a fascinating beverage. You need to pick the right beans, blend them in the right proportion, roast them to perfection, and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup. Which is exactly like great conversations as well. You need to track down the most interesting minds, get them into their zone, and settle down for an unhurried, unscripted chat. And coffee for me is always, always, always best enjoyed with friends. I'm Karthik Nagarajan, and do share my table with as I meet some of the most interesting people I know and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation. Join me every Wednesday for a freshly brewed episode. This is not frappe. This is the Filter Coffee Podcast.